0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Uh, Continue in 2 Timothy uh, this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So if you have a Bible, I I hope you do. Go ahead and open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Starting in verse 16, and while you're doing that, I want to tell you just a little bit of the significance of these two verses for uh, me and for my family. I think it was about two two summers ago. Our church, uh, as as um, our Spirit Lake campus, our Spencer campus, as a whole church, we decided we're going to just focus on memorizing God's word uh, through this summer. And so, uh, we have one verse each week that we, as a church, were, we're going to memorize and, and set to heart. And I think that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 was either the first or it was the second of uh, those weeks. And I don't know, Kurt, if you remember it, one of those two, um, but it was... Um, it, was, it, was, it made sense because it was, it was a foundational verse for our understanding of God's Word. And, and Crystal and I, my wife and I, um, understanding the importance of this passage, of, of this verse, we, we said, hey, you know what, we want to actually just uh, not just memorize this on our own, but we want our, our children, at that time they were three, two, and I guess not even one, uh, to, to try to, to set this um, um, into their hearts as well, and to memorize this as well. And so we, we decided we're going to go ahead and uh, put this verse to song. Second uh, Timothy chapter three verse 16, we put it to song. And our oldest two caught on relatively quickly, but when we first started doing this, our youngest was about nine months old, and he couldn't even talk yet, let alone uh, recite a verse, um, though of course it wasn't for lack of trying. And uh, over the course of the last two years, our our family has come back to this verse time and time and time again during our family devotions. And it has been, in in a very real sense, kind of the bedrock for our understanding of God's Word and of the Bible. So an example from this past Tuesday. This past Tuesday, Silas and Mara, they're five and four now, uh, Silas and Mara were preparing their verses for Crosswinds Kids, our Wednesday night uh, children's ministry, and and they're working on reciting the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28, and uh, as soon as they get done, Ezra, our two-year-old, he shouts out, I want to do my verse now! And what he had in mind was 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and he wanted to recite it for like the 500th time in a row. And it was a relatively innocent statement from Ezra in that moment, and all he really meant from it was simply that he doesn't want to be outdone by his older brother and sister, right? His, his older brother and sister, they're reciting a verse. He wants to be someone who recites a verse as well. But as I was preparing uh, for this morning's sermon, his statement, it really just hit me. When he shouted out, I want to do my verse, it, it reminded me uh, of, wow, that should, be, that should be like all of us and, and, and all of us have this prayer that it would be so, that God would make that this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17, that God would make that our verse, that this confidence in the scriptures would be the foundation of our lives. And so as we look at this text this morning, I just I just pray in the background that that would be true of us, that we would be a people who would latch on to these two verses and say, "You know what? This is going to be the bedrock. This is going to be the foundation of my life and of following Jesus." Now, you could ask any of my children what this verse actually means, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, and I don't think they would give you be able to give you an answer. This word reproof, they'd probably just giggle when you said that, because it sounds like a made-up word to a four-year-old. But they know that there's something special about the Bible, and that's a great place for us to start this morning. Just by recognizing that there's something special about the Bible, there is a reason why we take it so seriously, there's a reason why we want to honor Jesus with our lives, and we start by being rooted in the Scriptures. So these two verses, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, they give us a picture of how God intends to use the Bible in your life. And if there's one truth that I hope just sticks with you, sinks deep down into the very bones this morning, it would simply be this. The Bible is God's greatest tool for living a faithful life. The Bible is God's greatest tool for living a faithful life. Remember, 2 Timothy, if you have been with us over the last couple months, if you haven't, 2 Timothy is all about being faithful in this life. That's why we've called it 2 Timothy, faithful to the end. Every verse is concerned with faithfulness, living a life that honors Jesus no matter what comes our way. And so as Paul is coming to the end of this letter, he's coming to the end of his life, he reminds his friend Timothy to take full advantage of the gift that God has given him in the Word of God. And so as we work our way through these two verses this morning, what I want us to do is, I just want us to to break them apart into three parts. First, I want us to consider what they say about what Scripture is. Second, I want us to consider what they say about what Scripture does. And then finally, I want us to consider what Scripture produces in our life. So, what Scripture is, what Scripture does, and finally, what Scripture produces in our lives. If you have a Bible, uh, please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness— that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, as we, uh, as we gather around your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us. We thank you that you still speak in the scriptures, and we ask that you would open our eyes now to see the beauty of this truth. God, that through your spirit, we would uh, be able to see your word as profitable that you would use it to teach us, shape us, make us more like you. We ask that you would do this so that we can be complete, that we can be equipped for every good work. God, in essence, we ask that you would use your word the way you promised to use it, to help us to be faithful to the impossibly high but impossibly glorious calling to follow you. God, help us to be rooted in the Scriptures. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and start first by looking at what Scripture is. This is found at the very beginning of verse 16, what Scripture is. We looked at this in depth last week, so we're not going to spend too much time looking at it this morning. It says this, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So, Scripture is breathed out by God, and what Paul means when he writes that is, in essence, that Scripture is the very words of God. This is what Paul makes very clear in the first half of this verse. Last week, we saw that Scripture communicates exactly what God wants to communicate in the exact way that God wants to communicate it. And that's not just true for bits and pieces of the Bible, but for all of that, this is very clear when Paul says all Scripture at the beginning of this verse. When Paul is writing this, he's got in mind the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been finished yet. And so he's saying all of the Old Testament is profitable. It's breathed out by God. But the New Testament takes a similar approach to describing itself as well. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter alludes to Paul's writings as Scripture, it says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Similarly, as Paul is writing in 1 Timothy chapter 5, a different letter to his friend Timothy, Paul quotes the gospel of Luke, Jesus speaking in the gospel of Luke. He quotes it alongside Deuteronomy, referring to both as scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 18 says this, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So that first quote, about the ox, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. The second comes from the gospel of Luke. So while Paul here, as he's talking about all scripture being breathed out by God, he's referring to the Old Testament, yes, but he's also referring to the New Testament. These are the very words of God. Second Timothy's argument is that we can't dismiss parts of the Bible as not the word of God while we keep others and one, t- uh, one objection that I oftentimes hear in this regard is, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some people will read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and they'll say, okay, so Paul himself recognizes that some of the stuff he is writing is scripture and some of it is just his own opinion. And they'll refer back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. and says this, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So the argument goes something like this from 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Paul himself recognizes that some of the things that he is writing are scripture when he says, not I, but the Lord, he is referring to Scripture. And other parts, Paul recognizes he is not, he, he's not writing Scripture, that this isn't authoritative. And that's why he says, I, not the Lord. But is that what Paul is claiming here? Well, ironically, Paul is making the opposite claim. In verses 10 and 11 of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he is saying that, that husbands and wives should not get divorced. And, and we can ask ourselves, is this mentioned anywhere else in the Bible? Well, yes, it's mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels, and wouldn't you note it? That's exactly what Paul says here when he's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, talking about where this command comes from. He is saying that this teaching comes from Jesus. It comes from the Lord himself. So when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he's not saying, well, half of this is authoritative and half of this isn't. He's saying, hey, half of this actually comes from Jesus himself. Jesus said this, and you have these scriptures. But that doesn't mean that what he says afterwards in verse 12 isn't authoritative. He's saying, you know what, we're talking about this divorce and remarriage. Not anymore. We're talking about something different. If a person becomes a Christian and their spouse remains an unbeliever, then Paul is saying that, what, uh, that, that they should not seek a divorce if their spouse is remil- willing to remain married to them. And so we can ask ourselves the same question. Is this mentioned anywhere else in the Bible? And, and the answer is, well, not, not really. So this is a, a new teaching from Paul. So Paul has just got done quoting Jesus, the Lord, in verses 10 and 11. And now he says in verse 12, well, here's a new command For a new set of circumstances for the people of God. In other words, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and as a whole for all of Scripture is it's no less authoritative, it's no less the word of God. It's just that for Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he's not quoting Jesus anymore. For Paul, and the New Testament authors, we, we don't divide up the Bible into the Word of God and, and into the human parts. Paul makes it very clear in Second Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And we spent a, a fair bit of time last week looking at what this phrase, breathed out by God, means. It refers to the source of Scripture. We refer to this as the doctrine of inspiration, but this term uh, can be unhelpful for us if we don't properly define what inspiration means. Many times when we use the word inspiration, we say or we mean that we find something to be inspiring. So I read an autobiography uh, about the life of a boy who escapes the genocides of war-torn Sudan, and, and I look at his life, and I look at his endurance, and I find that inspiring. Is that what the Bible means when we, or is that what we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? Well, this word, breathed out by God, these words, really just one word in Greek, it's a compound word. Paul seems to have just made it up to describe the origins of Scripture. God breathed. This is his description, that these scriptures are breathed out by God. Just as the breath that you exhale comes from you and is breathed out by you, Paul is arguing that the same thing is true of scripture. It comes from the exhalation of God. And if this claim is true, that scripture is breathed out by God, then that means that it's not just like a relic of the past. It doesn't fall into the same category as classic works like Homer's The Iliad or Plato's The Republic or any number of books that have withstood the test of time. Those may be inspiring, yes, but only the Bible is God-breathed. And if the Bible is God-breathed, If the Bible comes from God himself, then it is still relevant today. It still speaks to the day in and day out mundaneness of your life, to the highs of life, especially to the lows of life. If scripture is breathed out by God, then God still speaks through his word. Perhaps you hear that and you are skeptical, it sounds supernatural, which is true, by the way. It it sounds supernatural. Maybe it's just something you've never experienced, and you're wondering, is there a way to actually test this theory out? Well, the answer is yes. Just start reading the Bible. Pray before you read, asking God to speak to you through his word, that if it is really his word, that he would reveal himself to you and just start reading. Do it for a week. Do it for two weeks. Do it for a month. And as you open the scriptures consistently, you will see that God still speaks to his people today because all scripture is breathed out by God. Of course, it follows, if Scripture is breathed out by God, then it is also profitable. And that's exactly what Paul says, that this word profitable here, when he's talking about Scripture, it just means useful, beneficial, advantageous. There is a benefit to reading God's Word. That is because they are the very words of God. And this is what the rest of verse 16 describes. Scripture is useful. It is beneficial. It is advantageous. In what way, or or put another way, what does Scripture do for us? Take a look at verse 16 again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In short, and I'm going to borrow some language from John Stott, he says that Scripture transforms our creed and our conduct. Scripture transforms our creed and our conduct. These first two terms that Paul uses here talk about what we believe or our creed. This idea of teaching focuses on teaching us the right things to believe. This focus on reproof is reproving us when we are believing the wrong things. First, Paul says that Scripture, profitable for teaching. In other words, it tells us positively what we are to believe. This is plainly evident in Scripture. It teaches us what God is like. It teaches us what we are like as well. It helps us make sense of the world all around us. It helps us make sense of ourselves. At the same time that the Bible teaches us what we are to believe, it also reproves or or corrects wrong beliefs about God, about ourselves, and about the world. The two have to go hand in hand. The, The wrong views of God that we have, they must be torn down at the exact same time that right views of God are given to us. And for me, one of the most powerful pictures of, of this uh, in the Bible is the story that's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. To me, that story just is a beautiful picture that, that rips down my false understanding of myself, my false understanding of what God is like, and rebuilds it into what he actually is like. You're probably familiar with this story if you've been in the church before. A man has two sons. The younger of these two sons asks to cash out his inheritance early, goes off into this far country, squanders all of his inheritance away. And when he comes to his senses, he says, you know what? Man, I'll just go back to my dad because even if I am one of his slaves, my life will be better than it is right now. And so he sets off on this journey, and he's got his plan in place, and that is to make amends with his dad when he gets home. He's got his making amends speech ready to go. But when he's still a far way off from home, his dad sees him and runs to him. And that son doesn't even get a chance to give his making amends speech his dad just scoops him up, welcomes him back into the family, throws a party for him. But the story isn't over. The father, while the father is throwing this party for the younger son, it, it infuriates his older son. And he refuses to come to the party because how, how, how upset he is that his dad would welcome his estranged brother back into the family with open arms. And so his dad goes out to talk to the older son out in the field, just like he went to talk to his younger son. And the older son is irate. He says that his dad never let him have fun, that all of the things that he did, all of his obedience for his dad was an absolute waste. And this story shatters and rebuilds our understanding of God, of salvation, and of ourselves. It shows us the most common ways that people will relate to God and what he is actually like. Many people, like the younger brother, want nothing to do with God. And so they will run as far away from him as they possibly can, live the life that they have always wanted, but sometimes they will come to their senses and then they figure out that the only way that God is going to let me back into his good graces is if I earn it. This making amends speech that the younger brother has. And if I can just be his servant or his slave, then that will be good enough. On the other hand, many of us are like the older brother, living an exemplary life, at least on the outside, but inside there's a disease that is just as bad we see that people like the older brother, they don't actually want anything to do with God either. In fact, the only reason that the older brother has been following all of his dad's rules is so that he can get his dad's inheritance. He's got the exact same heart as his little brother. He doesn't want his dad. He just wants what his dad can give him. And when his brother is welcomed back into the family with open arms, he, he essentially says, so all this acting good was an absolute waste. If all I had to do was just come back to you, and then I would get everything that I ever wanted, I should have gone away and wasted my life just like my little brother. For many, this story shatters our understanding of ourselves Like the older brother, we think ourselves far better of a person than we actually are. We are blind to our own diseased heart. It forces us to wrestle with our motives for obedience. Am I doing good because I only want to be blessed by God or what I can get out of it? Or am I actually desiring to love my father? It also shatters our view of what God is like. Both the younger brother and the older brother thought their dad was like them. The younger brother thought that his, that his only shot of getting back into his the father's good graces was with years of hard labor, of servitude, of making amends. In the same way, the older brother thought that his dad would just rip into his little brother because of his wasteful and sinful living. But that's not what we encounter in this story. In this story, we encounter a God who loves with an unstoppable love who has run as far, for for those who have run as far away from him, he runs to them. And for those who are trying to be so good that they don't actually even need God, he runs to them as well. It also shatters our understanding of how we can be made right with God. The the two sons, they, they act in different ways, and yet they have the exact same approach to their father. They think that the key to being in their father's family is earning it. And so the younger brother, when he is far off from his dad, he's going through this speech in his head and he says, Three things. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Second thing, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Third thing, just make me a slave, make me a servant. And yet when he gets to his dad, as he's been running through these three things over and over and over again, his dad doesn't let him say the third thing. He says, yes, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He says, yes, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And yet his father scoops him into his arms. The older brother has a similar view when he sees that his younger brother is welcomed into this family without having to do that. He's irate because he should have to earn it. And when we look at our own lives and the ways that we so often relate to God, so often relate to salvation and what salvation is actually like, we encounter passages like this in Scripture, and they teach us what God is actually like. They teach us what we are actually like. They teach us what salvation is actually like. And part of that is ripping down these false beliefs. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof, for transforming our creed, what we believe. Scripture also transforms our conduct or our actions, the way we live our lives. This is what Paul has in mind in the latter half of these four. When he talks about correction and training for righteousness, God uses Scripture to correct our, our wrong behaviors and, and wrong actions by telling us what we must not do, but it also tells us what we must do in order to live a faithful, God-honoring life. And again, this is, these are two things that go hand in hand, aren't they? As we follow Jesus, as we become more and more like Jesus, it is a lifelong process of putting some things to death and putting on, to use language from Colossians, the the fruit of the Spirit, the the things that that make us more and more like Jesus. Colossians chapter 3. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and, and he starts with this. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So what Paul is saying is saying, you know what, you have been united with Jesus in his death, in verse 3, and you've been united with Jesus in his resurrection, verse 1, so in light of all that God has done for you in the gospel, here's what it means for you to live a faithful life. Now, and after he gives us correction, he gives us all of these different areas of our lives that we are supposed to put to death in verses 5 through 11 of Colossians chapter 3, then he talks about training in righteousness, what it looks like for us to actually live like Jesus in this world in verses 12 through 17. And it culminates with this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The scriptures are profitable. They're beneficial because they transform our conduct. They tell us how we are to live. Especially in a contentious age, in the last days, to use language from 2 Timothy, to live a life that honors Jesus. And that brings us to the final part of this passage, what Scripture produces. So what Scripture is, what Scripture does, finally, what Scripture produces. You see how This passage is building on itself. If Scripture is the very Word of God, then it will do something, and it will transform our creed, it will transform what we believe, it will transform our conduct, how we behave. And then finally, because Scripture is the very Word of God, because it transforms us, it produces within us faithfulness to the end. It produces within us faithfulness to the end. Let's go ahead and read all of it together. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So because Scripture is the very word of God that he uses to transform us, transform our beliefs and our behaviors, the Bible produces faithfulness in the people of God. This is what Paul has in mind when he says that the man of God may be complete. Remember, he's he's primarily writing to Timothy here. This is why he says, man of God. This is applicable in one sense to to all of God's people. If you want to be complete, then there is no better place to turn than to the Scriptures. And I, I just love this word complete here because it doesn't mean perfect. It means something like proficient. And I don't care what vocation you are in. Some proficiency in that vocation is required, isn't it? You want... When I, uh, when I went into seminary, um, I had to take a, a number of exams to test my proficiency in ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew, which was as fun as it sounds. But tests for proficiency are a part of, of all of life, no matter what vocation you find yourself in. You want someone who is doing things for you, who is proficient, that is competent, that is skilled. You want a proficient mechanic working on your vehicle. You want a proficient surgeon being the one who is performing your procedure. You want a proficient teacher being the one who's teaching children, and so on and so forth. So what does Paul have in mind when he talks about proficiency here? That, that Scripture produces proficiency in us, but what is the task that is at hand, isn't it faithfulness? Faithfulness in a world that seems to be like it's falling apart all around us being faithful to God when everything else is going wrong in this world. This has been Paul's concern for Timothy since the very beginning of this letter, that he would remain faithful to Jesus after Paul is gone. And he gets here to the high points of this letter, and he says, Timothy, if you want to live a faithful life once I'm gone, just look to the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures will produce... Completeness, competency, proficiency for the task that is before you. Living a faithful life in an unfaithful world. If you live in the scriptures, you will find competency for a chaotic world. When your life is filled with hardship, and affliction, and you can't even make sense of up from down, let alone the path forward. The Scripture shows us time and time and time again how to do the task at hand, which many times is just to hang on. In the Scriptures, God has given you everything you need to be faithful to Him through thick and thin, from beginning to the end. And part of that faithfulness is being equipped for every good work, as Paul says here. The Bible makes it quite clear that while we are not saved by good works, we are certainly saved for good works. Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How do the scriptures prepare us for good works? More, Most basically, they, they show us how to discern what is good, but more fundamentally, the more we commune with God in the scriptures, our desires are transformed. We begin to to long for the things, desire the things that are closest to God's heart. The Holy Spirit is at work in us to strengthen us to live out a faithful life, a life that is immersed in the scriptures will be faithful to the end. And that's why we began our time in God's Word with this declaration. The Bible is God's greatest tool for living a faithful life. It's God's greatest tool for living a faithful life. I I look around this room and I imagine every single person here wants to be more faithful. More faithful husbands, more faithful fathers, more faithful Wives more faithful, mothers more faithful, co workers more faithful, friends more faithful, followers of Jesus. And Paul tells us in the Bible that the greatest tool for faithfulness in your life is right in front of you, it's in your hands. To not look any further than the Bible, the Bible is God's greatest tool for faithful living in your life. Because the Bible, the very words of God, transforms our creed, it transforms our conduct, and produces within us a faithfulness to the end. And if you hear that and and you say, that sounds great, I I just don't really know where to start, well, why not start with our take-up-and-read plan for the month of May? Back in January, we started this take up and read plan focusing on just reading scripture together as a church family. And we got another month uh, uh, ahead of us. We're starting tomorrow going through the book of Hebrews and then a couple other uh, epistles in the New Testament. Great place for us to start to spend time reading God's word because of what it is, because of what it does, and because of what it produces within us. The Bible is God's greatest tool are living a faithful life. If you want to be faithful, take up and read. Let's pray. Father, your word is such a gift. We thank you that you still speak through it, and we ask that you would bless each person here, each person watching online To be a people who take your word seriously. To dedicate ourselves to it. We thank you that you speak. Give us ears to hear and hearts to follow. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.